Welcome to the Hempson's podcast about PCN incorporations, which follows a webinar which uh, I, Justin Cumberledge from Hempson's and also Sally Sideway at Morris Crocker had today. And this podcast is uh, given to you not as legal or accountancy advice, but just to give you a flavour of the sort of um, issues that people have been thinking about and then some of the um, legal and accountancy um, solutions that we have. So, Sally, would you like to just introduce yourself? Yes, hello. Um, uh, my name is Sally Sidaway. I'm a medical director at Morris Crocker Chartered Accountants, um, and we look after a large number of GP practices, primary care networks, federations, etc., on the South Coast. Thank you. And Hemsons, you'll know about we're a nationwide firm, so there should be an office near you, not that offices are very important nowadays. And so incorporation of PCNs. Uh, first of all, um, Sally, let's just dispel the myth that you can incorporate a PCN. Indeed, yes. I mean, I think that this is the key myth really here that um, when we're talking about incorporation of PCN, what we're actually, we're not talking about the PCN that you have yourself. At the moment, the DES has to be entered into by the member practices, the individual partnerships, and the PCN that you've probably got at the moment is a quasi-partnership of those practices. We can't, that isn't in, its, in itself a legal entity, um, and we can't just incorporate that entity. What we're talking about here is setting up a limited company, a shared service company that sits above the PCN, employs the staff, takes some of the risk away. We have methods within it to, to control some of the VAT problems, etc, etc. So you land up with a PCN limited, that's the shared service company, and your PCN still exists below it. Yeah, absolutely. And that does mean that you have got um, the potential for two sets of um, corporate governance, if you like. So you've got your PCN network agreement, and then you've got your articles of association, which you'd have to have for the PCN company. The, um, the, the clever bit is when you can bring those two together. And so you're not, you're not duplicating by having a board meeting for your company and a board meeting for your network afterwards, and perhaps not even quite knowing which is which. So what we try and help you do is to bring the two together and um, not uh, cause duplication. But at the same time, you've got the structure that surrounds uh, companies. And that's a great advantage if you're trying to be well organised and ensure that you've got proper lines of governance within your PCN. So uh, would you, Sally, think that... Um, incorporating companies for every PCN? Absolutely not, no. I mean, it's an instance where you are big enough to be your own PCN as a, as a practice, then I wouldn't, don't think I'd go down that road at all at the moment, particularly with the um, slight uncertainty with regard to longevity of PCNs and what may happen in the future, because most of the issues that we're looking at now, um, the, 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 the experience of having to incorporate PCN is, is mainly around VAT and employment risk. I think if you are your own PCN, then that, that uh, maybe is not an issue. I think if you your PCN is being run by your federation and the relationship between the primary care network and the federation you're both, both sides are happy with, and the federations have considered the employment of staff and, and the VAT risk, then it may not be necessary in those instances. I think the instances where it, it, it could be important is where you've got large numbers of our staff that are employed in the different member practices in either, in either a flat practice or lead practice model, where those R staff are being utilised across the PCN with the different member practices. I think that is 
where we've got the major VAT risk and the ramping up of employment risk as well. And I think I would look at it. In some clients that we've talked to, have looked at it carefully and um, with, with the benefit of that advice have then decided that they're going to stay as they are for now. But you do still need to keep an eye on VAT legislation rules because it may mean you're not going to incorporate, but you may need as a practice then to, to register for VAT. So be careful of that one. Yeah, and also this um, looking at the sort of bigger picture, it's, you know, what do you want to do in the future with your PCN? I mean, you're a group of four practices or five practices. Um, if you want to keep on working together, if you want to take on more projects, um, you know, if you're looking at future opportunities, uh, it becomes quite a risky business. You're putting your house on the line as a partner. But um, if it's in a company, then you are limiting that liability if things didn't go right. But uh, so your appetite for risk might be a bit um, greater and also then the possibility of greater rewards, assuming things do go right. So uh, a bit of horizon gazing, if you like, as to um, what you could do with this company could be important. Um, and though there are those who can see great opportunities and also uh, some of the commissioners are looking at how you could uh, have other services provided um, by PCNs at PCN level, um, which are not necessarily DESIs, and they will be looking at entities um, to, to um, award those contracts to. So a PCN company could be that idea of a vehicle. Uh, there may be a sustainability issue as well. Some PCNs have got a number of practices which are struggling um, or are looking at uh, people retiring in the near future. And there could be an attraction to having a company which can employ people um, and that might draw in uh, more people, um, not necessarily all GPs, but uh, other clinical staff. And so you build up uh, more of a pyramid type structure um, around your primary care uh, staffing. So there are those opportunities which um, a company perhaps lends itself more to than the traditional partnership model. I think on the preventative side as well, um, I would talk to my clients around the fact that at the moment in a, in a GP partnership, you are jointly and severally liable for everything that goes on at the partnership. And that's a reasonably comfortable position because you know and love those partners that you work with. You know what's going on in your entity. As PCNs grow, and particularly those that have got um, a, a number of PCN member practices, it's just wise for the, the partners to just sit back and think, I am jointly and severally liable for everything that goes on at primary care network level. Um, if we have an incorporated organisation sitting above the PCN, then a lot of that risk is ring fenced within that limited company. And that is sitting more comfortable with individual partnerships that are, are concerned about the increasing risk for themselves personally. Yeah, absolutely. And there is quite a lot to be done when you're um, creating a new company. So, you know, you need to put in place the documentation and make sure that it's right for you. So just as you've got a partnership deed, so with the company, you need articles of association, which are the um, bedrock of the constitution of any company. Um, then you probably need to look at your network agreement to see that it um, properly utilises that company and takes good account of it. You will need to subcontract the DES services from the PCN practices to the company. And 
the company will also probably need some premises. So it will need occupational rights of those premises. You need to make sure you're not jeopardising the rents and rates reimbursement, although NHS England has been mindful of that and has said that PCNs can occupy um, practice premises. You may need to amend the partnership agreements that you've got in place to allow for uh, the PCN company's role. And you may want directors' um, service agreements for the directors of the PCN company. There would also need to be a data sharing agreement for that company to be able to share the data about patients and so on. And you may want a corporate handbook. Uh, You'd need to think about how the company dovetails into other people which are working with your PCN. So the Mental Health Trust, the um, Social Services Foundation Trust, the hospitals and so on. Social Services might also be members of your PCN. So um, they wouldn't be members of your company. So you need to think about how you involve those um, and really using Schedule 7 of your network agreement. Justin, one thing that we get asked quite a lot, and I I think it has put off a couple of um, uh, PCNs from going down this route, is that um, GP partners are used to the GP partnership model and are somewhat frightened by the director's duties and fiduciary duties and other duties. uh, they, really, in, in my opinion, they have those duties in, in their partnerships anyway to keep proper order, proper financial records and correct governance and that. Could you just, just enlarge on that from a corporate point of view a little? Yeah, you're right. I mean, as shareholders and owners of the company, your liability is limited to the um, cost of the shares. And sometimes that's just one pound that you've paid and that's the limit of your liability. But as you say, Sally, directors who are the people who have to run the company do have responsibilities and those are set out in the Companies Act, particularly sections 171 to 179, as to what they must uh, take into account as directors. And those are important, um, such as not to have conflicts of interest, to bear in mind the impact of the company's actions on um, all its members, but also on the environment, on the community. But most importantly, I think, where directors need to be wary of is that they must not trade wrongfully. And so wrongful trading is where a company takes on more liability than it can actually service. So, for instance, you employ more staff than the income you receive to pay those staff. And for a PCN, there is a danger of that because... um, you have very short-term contracts and in particular you might end up with redundancy bills uh, which you've got to pay off and um, as a director you need to be aware of that and you need to set aside the money to do that but as long as you've been acting prudently as a director you're unlikely to be prosecuted which ultimately directors who breach their um, duties uh, can happen to them um, and then they're struck off from ever being a director again and it can actually fall back onto um, a professional matter you know the GMC might pick it up but most companies and most directors don't go anywhere near that and just by acting sensibly by have, uh, being well advised so you've got your accountants you've got your lawyers Um, when difficult decisions are coming up and just keeping an eye on that cash flow, you might 
um, put in place an agreement with the practices that if you're running out of cash, they are obliged to advance more cash, either through a loan or through buying more shares to increase the capital in the company. And by those sort of sensible means, you can avoid the risk of wrongful trading and the consequences of that. So otherwise, as you say, Sally, it's it's no different from just being a prudent partner. So you should be a prudent director, uh, remembering that when you're a director, you're acting in the best interests of the company as a whole and not in the interests of your individual practice. Indeed. Our questions that I've been sort of receiving as well is who is going to set up this PCN uh, Limited and, and who is going to run it? And, and certainly from my point of view, obviously, I think those of you that were, were listening to the, the webinar will understand there's a lot of work will be taken out of your hands. The legals, you know, will be done by a legal advisor and we can do a lot to help as the accountants with regard to the initial setup of your entity. But I, I think these organisations, primary care networks are now fairly large and fairly complex. And it is important for clinicians to understand that they do need proper management time installed in them as well. So I would say uh, most primary care networks now do need a primary care network manager. It's There's too much work and too much onus to t- opt for those duties to, to just assume that the, pri- the practice managers, that the relevant practices will just do a bit each and it will all, all happen nicely, I think. And as well, if we go back to the fiduciary duties of the director, you want to be able to, as a director, delegate duties down to able managers that that, that, that is their job to make sure that, particularly from, from my point of view, the financial side of things are are running uh, according to plan with proper accounting records so at any one point in time you can see what the financial position of that organization is and make sure that there's no wrongful trading or or, or issues with regard to that so I think um, we can do an awful lot as lawyers and accountants to help you set up um, as accountants we can help with bookkeeping going forward but you really do, do need someone at primary care network end to manage that function going forward and to understand uh, and to take that organization forward. That is very sound and practical advice, Sally. Absolutely agree with that. And um, so so I think, you know, in summary, it's really about the, the function that you want your PCN to have in the future. And the function, if that says that you should have a company and it would help you in carrying out those functions, then we can put in place a company which really does what you want it to do. It should not restrain you um, beyond the um, statutory limitations. Um, and the beauty of companies are that it's a very flexible um, format. It's been around for 150 years and it works really well. And uh, we can build in those safeguards that you require and ensure that the decision making and so on is fair and that the people on the board um, are properly there to represent your interests and to drive the company forward in that way. And from my perspective, just to finish on the two issues that from an accounting perspective we would look at were be VAT legislation and has that been applied properly and do we need to put anything in place to mitigate the risks there and taxation of surplus um, there. So it's really tax issues that, that we're coming from. Um, lots of the legalities and the ability to set up a corporate and use it for the future uh, is not related to, to necessarily the financial. The impacts now that we see are the VAT legislation that is, is a problem and income tax um, burden on individual partners from from the structure that you're currently in uh, with lead and flat practice models. But I can discuss that with anybody further if need be. Brilliant. Thank you very much, Sally. Thank you. And that ends this podcast. Thank you for listening. 
and as we said, please do contact us if you want to know anything further.